How to think about the future today and learn from it? How does the war influence our thinking and action? You're listening to the Explain Ukraine podcast and its series, Thinking in Dark Times. My name is Volodymyr Yermolonko. I'm a Ukrainian philosopher and chief editor of ukraineworld.org. My guest is Otto Scharmer, a German-born American intellectual who introduced influential concepts of Theory U, Presencing, Deep Listening and others in an attempt to learn from the emerging future and act in a more creative way. Otto Scharmer is a senior lecturer at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, and founding chair of the Presencing Institute. Through his best-selling books, Otto introduced the concept of presencing, learning from the emerging future. Thinking in Dark Times is a podcast series by Ukraine World. This series seeks to make Ukraine and the current Russian war against Ukraine a focal point of our common reflection about the world's present, past and future. We try to see the light through and despite the current darkness. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the largest Ukrainian media NGOs. You can support us at patreon.com slash ukraineworld. We provide exclusive content for our patrons. You can also support our regular volunteer trips to the frontline areas at PayPal, ukraine.resisting.gmail.com. Otto Scharmer, welcome to this podcast. Uh, thank you for having me on. It's a, it's a great honor for me. I, I hope I uh, can be useful. And I think I have as many questions to you than uh, you have for me. It's very good. So we can discuss uh, and uh, be in a dialogue. And this is the goal, actually, of, of this series, Thinking in Dark Times, to make these bridges between Ukrainian reflection and non-Ukrainian reflection. So, Otto, you're one of the, those thinkers who think profoundly about the future and about uh, our capacity to transform ourselves and to think differently and uh, to think creatively. Uh, can we just start for our listeners um, um, a few words uh, about your ideas and in particular about you theory that you present about the idea of presencing of awareness and of transformation of communities sure happy to so um i'm a, a german born german american <clears throat> i um grew up um, <clears throat> north of hamburg on um a regenerative farm. So my, my parents, some 65 years ago, converted their farm from conventional to regenerative farming uh, practices. Um, I, uh, you know, woke up politically as part of the um, environmental anti-nuke and the peace movement of the late 1970s and early 1980s in Europe. Um both West and East, but particularly, you know, I was based in West Germany, but I had, you know, lots of partners in, in East Germany and partly Eastern Europe back then. So I also really experienced the power of civil society kind of um, in bringing down uh, bigger historical patterns like the, um, um, like the Cold War system um, firsthand. And then... Um, I realized, okay, <clears throat> so all these symptoms that, that we are running up against 
what are the deeper root issues here at work? And of course, a lot of them have to do with deeper systemic uh, forces, particularly with the economy. So I thought, okay, so I want to uh, drill down on that one a little more. Um, and um, as a student, I, I actually ran something like a Global Peace University. So it was a, a project uh, called Peace Studies Around the World with the, one of the founders of Peace Research as a Science, Johan Galtung. Uh, together, we, um, for a year, well, for nine months, um, in 98 and um, 1998, we went around the world and studied peace and conflict uh, from a cultural lens. And we try to understand culture through the lens of world religions. And in each, um, in each uh, part of the world, we would study the center perspective and the periphery. So that was our approach there. I realized at the end of my PhD that I was... Um, Really, I could talk about everything and uh, wasn't pretty much able to do anything practical about it. So in other words, I knew all the right things, but was I really useful to other people, the change makers who actually bring the new into reality through their everyday work? Uh, and the answer was sobering. So that's why I went from um, Europe to the US, to MIT here in Boston. Um, and I, I, I joined the um, MIT Learning Center, which um, you know really applies systems thinking uh, and links it with leadership and organizational change. And that's really what was of interest to me. And um, so uh, what, what really informed to, to come, so that's a little bit the context what informed my own thinking uh, to, to your first questions, because of what really is presencing and theory you. Um, early on, I did a study with 150 innovators, so uh, entrepreneurs and people who created change in technology and business in society and the arts and culture. And what I realized is that uh, many of these... Um, innovators have a very personal relationship to what I would call the future, right? Usually when, when you say future, people refer to something that happens at a different time by other people uh, in different places. But when I heard these people talk about the future, it was very different, right? It was very personal. And it was like more a possibility that was looking at them that they could connect with and that they knew depended on them, on their actions in order to come into reality. So something very personal. So it's like uh, a possibility looking at you because it depends on you in order to help it to, to manifest, to, 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 to become real. And um, that's where I thought, well, that's a really important part um, because that's about the creation of a future that's different to the past. That's a really important part of what we do as humans. Why don't we have a word for that? And that's why I was looking around for a word, and I found, um, you know, a French guy translating Heidegger, the German philosopher, into English. So he used that word presencing. And I thought, that's an interesting word, because presencing is blending sensing and presence. 
but it wasn't really used by anyone else. And but I, I thought uh, I want to use it and I want to apply it to exactly that thing. So what I mean with presencing is sensing an emerging future possibility that depends on me and then helping it to manifest. So that's what presencing is, sensing and realizing emerging future possibilities. And to my surprise, I found many people, certainly I experienced that as a young person, right, in, in the movements, right, the, the green movement, the environmental movement, the um, peace movement. If you're on the streets with people, if you do something collective, and uh, I'm sure you, you uh, in Ukraine now, and to some degree, all over the world, or kind of whoever is joining into that effort is, is, is feeling that, right? So you, you have a uh, very strong experience of that. So it, it's a possibility that you feel is possible, but it depends on you to show up, right? To show up with your, your own actions. And uh, that's, um, yeah, I think that's a very important part of who we are as human beings, but our understanding of how to actually do that is very little developed because if you look at the learning concepts in organizational learning and schools and everything, what is it we conceive of as learning? It's basically learning by reflecting on the experience of the past. But what I found in my research, in my practical work, and also organizational and societal change work is the most important learning today is not just learning from the past. Yes, that's necessary, but not sufficient but it's also learning from the future as it emerges in, in, in the current moment, in the now. And that's what I mean with presencing. That is very, very interesting. And uh, when I think about this uh, in Ukraine and from Ukraine, um, I see a completely different world because I see the world of Russia, which is basically one of the slogans of, of the Russian regime, is we can repeat, Mozhen uh, in Russian, right? So this is a, a metaphor that they actually use uh, in the past decades uh, to show, to, to frighten others that they can actually repeat the Second World War, that they can again invade Europe, that they can um, restore the Soviet Union. And basically the Russian ideology, the Putinist ideology is very much focused uh, on the past. This is something that we, we think about we think about uh, very very often. We talked about this with Tim Snyder, um, and this is a major, in a way, a major difference between Ukraine and Russia currently. It's attitude to time, attitude to future, because um, for Ukrainians the past is a very traumatic thing. When we look at the past, we see mostly suffering. We see the suffering of the Soviet era. We see the suffering of the Second World War. We see the suffering of Holodomor, Great Famine, etc., etc. Et so the society was very, very much in this big, big collective trauma uh, about which it, it couldn't even talk. Uh, and now this trauma is multiplied, of course, with this war. Uh, so, as I'm joking uh, all the time, a phrase that is impossible for Ukraine uh, is let's make Ukraine great again, because the word again is horrible for us. While uh, in Russia, uh, you can see this nostalgic attitude towards the past, 
And this is, in fact, closes the future. So Russians, um, in their current state of mind, as far as we perceive it, they perceive it in a different way, but we perceive it in, in, in that way. And this is our way of understanding one of the um, elements and, and, and reasons and causes of this aggression is basically a fight between future and the past. So they are trying to bring back the past. And this is something that um, we are accustomed to, right? So if, if we look at the totalitarian regimes of the 20th century, of uh, Italian fascism, of German Nazism, of uh, uh, Frankism in Spain, etc., you can see this nostalgic attempt to bring, that, bring back the past which no longer exists. So in a way we see that Ukraine in which this is a thirst for future, and we can see it in, in, in society. This, this, is fun, this is incredible desire for future. And uh, at the same time, Russia, which tries to amputate, to cut this, this future. And for us, it's a big question. So how we deal with this power, which, which doesn't think at all in, in the way that you describe, that doesn't really want the future, how we deal with it. So, of course, our response, and here we see, we, we see Ukrainians as really people who have this um, uh, sentiment of agency, what you described, the future depends on myself. And I have a metaphor that for us, our country, our nation is a baby about which we need to care. It's, it's not like in Europe or in America that your country, our country is a oppressive system which creates frames and we need to break these frames. But rather it's a newborn baby. It's very, very uh, unprotected and everything depends on us whether it will, it will survive. Uh, but we see that that other force that tries to cut the future, and uh, the only the only way to uh, go against it is to fight, is to struggle. What do you think? Well, I'm, I must say, um, this um, our country as a newborn baby. Uh, that's that's very moving. Uh, I think that's uh, it's a very different, you know being born and raised as a German, right? I mean, so what do you relate to your country? The more you look into history, the more horrified you are, right? I mean, including kind of what Germans did in Ukraine and so on and so forth. Um, I don't need to remind you, but uh, it's very different, right? So so what you describe is a very moving um, relationship, actually. So, So me growing up, uh, you know, there's a very, I mean, let's put it very mildly, right? It's a very mixed bag, right? You get through history, right? It's not only shadow, but a lot. And um, so what you, um, uh, what you describe is very different. And I think, so it's also touching me. It's like um, a, a newborn baby because... I think that's what the future genuinely is. I think personally, I think that's really what the future of humanity is hinging on. Never before was there a generation on earth um, whose action or inaction had such an outsized impact on 
not only all the other species, but also all the future generations, right? I mean, that's like, that's the matter of fact uh, in, in these uh, next uh, few decades between 2020 and 2050. And um, so I think what you describe, of course, is an ex extreme situation in Ukraine. Um, but it's also a microcosm of the world, the, the world we live in. But here's a, a question um, of Volodymyr, uh, I, I want to ask, because the um, uh, making such and so great, I mean, make America great again. I mean, so we are moving to the next cycle of that election here. Um, you're right. The most important word of that phrase is the last word, right? Again, because it's really about turning back. Now, I have been, I had the privilege over the last few years uh, uh, to be in Asia, to be a lot in the global south, in Latin America, Southeast Asia, other places. What I see, of course, in Europe and the US, and what, what do you see? You see polarization taking shape and taking grip of countries wherever you go. So, in other words, what you um, so when I what you describe, right, the Ukraine-Russian situation, I recognize these patterns a hundred percent, also from the American experience. But here, it's not two countries; it's one country, and it's not two communities; it's one community that's being ripped apart. And it's even going through families and so on and so forth. So I wonder whether... Now, now here's my question. Um, so I would assume, let's say... Okay, so when this war will be over, then a new situation arises, and then it's no longer there just us versus them. Of course, that's the predominant thing for all the obvious reasons right now. But there will be new fault lines also inside the country, right? Different groups with different interests. It's all one alliance now, but, you know, it, it, will, be, it will be more differentiated uh, once the war is over, we move into the next phase. Now, I wonder whether you already now can see some of that. Is it really that black-white that, that all the again people are in Russia? 100%, right? And it's kind of 0% of the again people, let's say, uh, in Ukraine. Or is there already some, some shades visible? So is there more differentiation? Because in my experience, I would say the 21st century, it was like, that it's like one block versus the other. That's almost the 20th century. I think uh, that, yeah, the 20th century, right? The Cold War issue, right? You had like two systems and so on and so forth. I think the 21st century is that this, this um, divide is not only going from one system to another or one country to another, but it's kind of going through countries, through communities, even through your own self. So this, uh, we are being... I mean, that's what I see here. That's what I see in many other countries, which is the community is being ripped apart by forces that 
we need to learn how to operate with in, in, in different ways. And um, now part of that is technology. Part of that is, is other things. I don't want to get into the ther- uh, so the, 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 the solution kind of thing. But on the diagnosis, kind of, can you, is that just what I, what I just said? Yes, I hear you, but I see all your d- distinctions, right? A- applicable inside this country, inside this community I'm living here. Is that something you recognize too, or is that totally alien to your current experience? No, absolutely, of course. Because, for example, if you take Ukraine, let's say 2010, when Yanukovych won the election, it was a country split in two. And the election just showed it that it is clearly split in two. Then we had this revolution of dignity, the Euromaidan, which consolidated um, a lot of people, but also alienated many other people. So there is a part of society which which would not uh, take Maidan and recognize it in, in the revolution. And then, of course, if we take the Russian invasion, um, uh, well, Maidan, it, it kind of created the recent, contributed to creation uh, of the most recent idea of Ukraine. Um, and uh, Russian invasion, of course, consolidated society very much in 2014 and in 2022. But it doesn't mean that this consolidation will be forever. We we can see still some ideological devices. There are still people who are, you know, I would not say pro-Russian, but at least in that, um, I would say, conspiratorial mode of thinking, which would say that Ukraine is a battlefield between the West and Russia. We're just pawns in this geopolitical play, etc. And they are very much, of course... Uh, vulnerable to to all the Russian propaganda that can come in a, in a, in a hidden way but uh, we also see the new the new problems the new divisions and they are they are not the divisions of ideas they are divisions of experience and of actions uh, because uh, what I mean like there are people who left the country there are people who didn't leave the country there are people who went to the front line as soldiers and people who did not. There are people who lost their family members, their beloved ones, and there are people who did not. Even more complicated stories, people who left the occupied territories because they actually refused to collaborate with the Russians, and people who stayed in the occupied territories and you can imagine that those people who left say that those people who stayed are collaborators and those people who stayed are saying that those who left are, uh, I don't know, traitors or whatever. So, of course, you, you, can, you, you can have a lot of this. And that's here, it, here's a question, a big question. And I think your methodology, which I... Which I looked upon with this idea of deep listening with this idea of open open mind open heart i think it's a very important for for you know for for this internal consolidation of society because one what we need to do is to be open to the other's experience and to understand that 
each experience is unique each experience has its own pain and um, maybe its own reason for example i have three children uh, and we didn't leave the country and uh, for me it's 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 a it's a big question because we didn't leave the country because we want to be in the country uh, we want to contribute to our our victory with my wife we travel a lot to the front lines bringing assistance to the army bringing cars and then dis- de- describing our experience in this podcast which I hope our listeners know very well but at the same time I'm risking my family I'm risking the lives of my children and 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 this is something very very uh, very big and, and therefore I cannot condemn those people those mothers who just took their children and and uh, went from the country because you can die in Ukraine at any moment at any place because Russian missiles reach to any city even in the western ukraine very far away from the russian border right so uh, these divisions are of course uh, are of course possible uh, what i see in 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 your countries in america in some european countries uh, some people blame technology i think technology is um, is a secondary thing the first thing is that I feel that that people have tired of peace. And this is a very dangerous thing. So people see their fighting instinct coming back. And therefore what I'm trying to say all the time is that you actually that there is two elements of our human nature. One element is an element of dialogue what i would call an ethics of agora when you listen when you talk when you exchange when you open to others another element is the element of a fighter of a warrior uh, which i call an ethics of agon and the big the big wisdom is to understand where one ends and another starts so i see the problems in in today's democracies is that citizens just confuse and started to confuse uh, these two ethics and they started to you know to fight against their neighbors against people who live just nearby they would rather keep this ethics of fight for something else i don't know to fight climate change or whatever else and here we can clearly say see that in the russian case therefore uh, our our kind of a criticism of many european governments uh, up until very recently including the german government is that basically they uh, failed to perceive this growing threat of russia which was not going to be in a dialogue with you you know and that's a question if you find a force which is not going to be in a dialogue with you which says to its citizens all the time i'm here to destroy europe i'm here to destroy the west i'm here to destroy the eu etc and you still pretend you don't hear that you need to engage with that while basically you needed to you know accumulate resources to defend yourself and this is not a not 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 a question only to europe but it is also a question to ukraine as well ukraine was also not very well prepared for this invasion so 
the wisdom is where and in, in which occasion you are with this presenting mood, you are in this open, open mind mood, you are in this, you know, deep dialogue, deep listening, and where you understand that it's no longer possible and you, mm. and you need to defend yourself and you need to fight. Mm. And uh, the wisdom is to, 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 know, to know where this line is. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, uh, it's, it's, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, I know what you mean. And, and you're certainly right on the, um, um, the, uh, the, the claim that, uh, for example, uh, not only, but for example, um, the, the, the German government for, for many years has completely underestimated and also misdealt with the challenge that's uh, coming from Russia. Um, at the same time, so so I, I agree on that, and, and and there has been a rethinking of that, as as you know, and also a, a change of um, behavior, at least to some degrees. Um, I, I would though also um, point out that um, what you just shared, right, which is um, a view that's shared by most people, I would say, um, not everyone, but, you know, most people in the West today, is not shared by at least half of mankind. And that's pretty much everyone in the global South. We just had the, the BRICS country meeting uh, down in South Africa. And so uh, when you go there, there is, um, as you know, kind of a very different view on what's happening in Europe right now. It's a different view on the war. It's a different view on the West and the um, the um, the let's say participation of the U.S. foreign policy in uh, the situation we are seeing now. I'm not saying the primary cause, but I'm saying the participation and the lack of reflecting on that uh, generally in the West and in Western media what you discuss at length outside of the West, outside the Western bubble, uh, I think is not helping us in any way. And uh, so that's why I'm mentioning it here. But, but that's not my main point I want to go down. I want to come back to your question. So I, I want to just state this, and we, we can explore that more deeply if you want. But um, my main point is really, uh, having said that, then what, where do you really draw the line? And um, so what, what we said before is really, uh, so there is this, I'm thinking of human experience in terms of layers, right? There are more surface layers and there are more deeper layers of experience. And if, we wanna, if you want to connect to the future, you need to access to the more subtle, to the more deeper and the less obvious levels of your experience. And that means deepening your listening, uh, deepening your, your conversation, the dialogue, essentially, as you said. And um, so I would say what I learned over the past 20 years as an action researcher is in working with organization, with pioneers, with change makers in, in all sorts of sectors and um, different regions in the world, what I learned is this, the most important condition to access the deeper layers of your experience 
which is to connect with the emerging future possibilities that you can actually help to manifest, right? Both individually and collectively through your actions. The most important precondition for that is opening the mind, opening the heart, and opening the will. So I think of these as kind of the three inner instruments that we have as human beings that we need to tune in order to connect with this deeper layer of our experience because the, the experience is always there. We are just not often, we are not paying attention to it. And opening the mind essentially means suspending old habits of judgment. So it means really move into the spirit of inquiry, kind of into curiosity, if you want. Open heart really means to look at a situation not from your own angle, but uh, from the angle of whoever it is you're dealing with. Um, so that can be your stakeholder, that can be a partner, that can be whoever that is. But really looking, moving beyond your own silo view on whatever the, the issue is uh, you're dealing with. And open will really is the capacity to uh, let go and let come. So let go of the old, basically the fixation on the past and letting come off, you know, something new that begins to emerge if you create that um, space of uh, possibility um, within yourself. So that's, um, that's really, I think that's almost, I think of, uh, of that um, almost like mechanics, right? So if you're judgmental, highly judgmental, if you are highly fixated to the own view, if you are highly rigidly um, holding on to your experiences of the past, it's almost, I mean, it's not almost, it's scratch that word. It's impossible to connect with emerging future possibilities. So those are, it's like, like mechanics, right? To access the emerging future, you need to open the mind, open the heart, open the world. That means you need to access curiosity, compassion, and courage. And um, so that's um, that, that's what I have learned. I have no idea how that is applicable or not to your situation. I think you have an amazing example that you participate in and you all participate in of a collective response to a challenge that requires everyone to rise to the occasion. I would also say that uh, probably, and, and that's kind of where there's a lot of evidence, particularly in terms of civil society, I would say, right? Kind of to, to show up in new ways. Now, how that is applicable to think about the emerging future, kind of the future that comes after kind of the current moment and what's the role of particularly civil society in that? I don't know, but I think that's just a very, um, very uh, important question. And, and part of that is also to think about the future of Europe in a mode that's not based on othering, that's not based on, you know, the absencing of the other, but that is based on kind of connecting with all these relationships. And that's, of course, particularly difficult in, uh, in a situation when you have like a historical relationship with so much trauma with the Germans, the Russians, the Soviets, I mean, um, the, the 1930s, uh, everything that was there before. 
um, yeah, I, I cannot, I just, I know that I can't even imagine what that means, but I do know from my other experiences that if you really want to connect to the highest future possibility, you need to, these three openings, the mind, the heart, the will, how to do it? Is it even possible under the conditions you're operating in? I have no idea. I do think it is possible. Uh, I, I don't think it is possible with regard to, uh, to, to our current enemy, to the Russians. Maybe it will be possible in the future. But I do think that what you suggest is not only possible, but extremely necessary uh, in uh, two dimensions. First is the, the dimension inside Ukraine, inside Ukrainian society. Because we, of course, we, we, we have one of the troubles of this young society, very, in, in a way, very energetic, that people... People see their own desires, people see their own dreams, and sometimes people just don't want to hear others. So people, especially if you take ordinary people, right? All those people who are, um, who are subject basically to conspiratorial theories. Why? Because conspiratorial, any conspiratorial theory simplifies things. It presents a very highly complicated uh, phenomenon in a, in a very simple way saying this is several agents who have very simple interests and who rule, rule the world, and etc. And uh, what is really needed is how you open up the minds uh, of people towards the others inside your society, not just towards the other political parties or, or whatever, but just to your neighbors. And this is something that Ukraine Ukraine really needs. That this is true, and uh, you know what? I will tell you that actually, what we do in Pen Ukraine, we travel every month. We go to frontline areas, uh, to deoccupied areas, and we just invite people. Usually in the libraries. Sometimes these libraries are destroyed by by the by the war by the Russian army. We bring them books and we listen to them. So we, we we say we came here from Kiev, from Lviv, not to teach you something, but to listen to you. Uh, and um, yes, we brought you some books, which are good books of Ukrainian writers, poets. You can read them. We can even we we even br bring these writers. They can probably say a few words, but. What is really important for us is to listen to you, to your experience, what you came through, uh, and uh, just tell us about it. And um, because there is something which is common in our experience, yeah, you know, we, we we go really to to lands which suffered a lot, uh, to to villages which are totally destroyed. We talk to people who are uh, lost members of. Uh, all the families in just one one uh, bomb strike or whatever, and this is really, and and what is what strikes us all the time, and what our colleagues, foreign journalists, tell us the incredible thing about Ukraine right now that people want to talk. So it's not only you know that you come and you ask them that people sometimes just people when we go go to like cities like Izum. 
or villages after Izum very, very much suffered uh, during fights one year ago. And when they understand that you came here, you're not from here, they sometimes come to you and start talking without even you asking questions. So people want to share this. And um, I think it's a very important uh, during the war just to show sometimes that you're you're not speaking, you're just listening, right? And and this is this is very important. Uh, one thing I would tell you about the global south, I understand what 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 you mean, and um, what I'm trying to do right now is to reach out to people from there. No, from India, I just recently had a. A uh, very interesting podcast with Aman Sethi, an Indian journalist and writer, to people from Africa, to people from Latin America, and uh, and try to go away from this stru- struggle of imperialisms because we are we are in the trap of this struggle of imperialisms because uh, Indians will tell you. You know, Brits and Americans are, are bad. Ukrainians and, and Russians are good. And Ukrainians will tell that Brits and Americans are good and Russians are bad. And we understand all the things in the past that leads us to this con- conclusion. But we need to go away from that. And we need to start conversation on the horizontal level. Like, what can Ukrainians can tell Indians and Indians can tell Ukrainians? What can Ukrainians tell South Africans and South Africans tell Ukrainians that make our experience comparable or interesting to each other or um, really enriching each other? And I do think that Ukrainians need this conversation because we are really uh, concentrated on ourselves and it's and it's important. I would say that what you're suggesting is, is very interesting, but we are... Like when you erase your prejudices and and your own voice to hear the other, but what we need it's a little different story because we actually had a history of totalitarian regimes erasing our voice, so we need to regain our voice. So it's a it's a different different way in a way. So we need to regain our agency, subjectivity. Our thinking about us, so it's it's a little bit different process, but at the same time, what you suggest is also very very important. So we need to go both ways to regain our feeling of ourselves, of our understanding who we are, of our self, collective and individual self, but also to open up to to others. That's really interesting. I mean, there are several things you said. One is, I, I thought kind of your story about uh, going to these um, areas, particularly the, the occupied or previously occupied areas and um, uh, listening. Uh, I, I think it's such a powerful and relevant uh, process. So a sub-question, I don't know, uh, uh, you, you, you may have. So w- when you rewind all these occasions where, where you went uh, uh, to these places and we're listening uh, uh, to, uh, to, to the stories you heard, what, what was it? Did, did you, um, I guess my question is, what, what was it that surprised you most about how people are coping with and responding to uh, the, the situation that they uh, experience in their life? 
I think the most surprising is how this situation only sharpens their willingness to leave, to leave and to feel and to share, because the war is horrible. It's it's a huge horrible thing. It's it's a, it's a nightmare. It's it's a it's a hell. So there is there should be no romanticization of the war, right? But uh, what it does bring, it brings you this uh, capacity to see life in all its fragility and to cherish life maybe much more than before, to cherish your home much more than before, to cherish your relatives who you probably hated before, but during the war you understand how you love them, right? Uh, and your neighbors, uh, etc. And uh, people feel it. And this acuteness of feeling that that we feel, oh, for example, when when we see how Ukrainian peasants, despite the fact that their house is destroyed, they come back every every day and cultivate their land or seed flowers and cultivate the flowers around destroyed houses. We we see lots of such things around Ukraine. So, in a way, uh, if you survive these tragedies, it doesn't kill your humanity. It sometimes even even stresses your humanity. But this doesn't mean that this is uh, irreversible. So people can come back to, to the old habits. Inertia is, is a very, very, uh, very powerful thing. But here in, in this moment, we see that. Well, I, I think that, that is um, really significant. And um, uh, before we switched on the mic, we, we had a, a few words of exchange about... Um, uh, also a metaphor I have been using in my writing quite a bit, which is the social fear, right? So so I grew up, uh, my, my parents are regenerative farmers. So what, I, what, you know, when you're basically you use, uh, what does it mean? It means you don't use pesticides or herbicides kind of, um, uh, and that means kind of your, uh, the, the main mechanism, right, for creating a yield and for creating results is the quality of the soil. So essentially is all, um, regenerative and organic farmers, all they are concerned with is the quality of the ecosystem, the quality of the soil. And when I think about my work today, it's it's pretty much similar, right? So all I deal with in, in my professional work is uh, as an action researcher and helping uh, systems and organizations to, de to develop and evolve is the social field, right? What is the social field? It is... Um, the quality of relationships. So it's the quality of our conversations. It's the quality of our listening and so on. And that's why I think that's really the soil out of which something new, which is kind of the emerging future can grow. If you don't have, like in farming, right? If you have a soil that's, that's broken, you in Ukraine, I mean, you have the most fertile soil on earth, right? It, it, it's, it's like... Um, uh, you know, I think that's kind of what um, uh, that's what my father was always telling me, right? The most fertile soil on earth is really in Ukraine. And so he never went there. I, I never did. But um, I often heard that. And uh, it's um, uh, it means what is it? So why is that so important in farming and regenerative farming in particular? Because the quality of the soil really is uh, the, the, the quality of results that, that you, of the yield that you can see with your eye is a function 
of the quality of the soil, of something that, that you, that's not as readily available to the eye. And I think in social systems, it's the same thing. The quality of results that we see in social systems are a function of the quality of relationships that we have with each other. And um, so that's where I think um, the, the, the quality of conversation is a good example. And what's the invisible side of conversation? It's listening, right? The quality of listening. So the practice you have, I found really, really interesting. And of course, it's, um, it also needs to be applicable uh, across regions, as, as you shared kind of with your colleague um, that you cited there from India. Now, I would say, uh, I, I may have, um, uh, you know, used, uh, uh, so the way I framed the example was may, maybe not um, the best possible way, uh, but I would say uh, that um, uh, going, so basically the, the presencing and the theory you work is improving the quality of the soil, right, of the social field. And what that really means is it's not like about the other view and my views. It's not like kind of, okay, they try to shut down our voice. And now, um, so I think it's more the, so in, in theory, you, the first gateway, really the open mind really is looking at one experience. So you can look at what other people say, but you can also apply the same process onto yourself, your own voice. And the first gateway, right, the, the open mind is essentially about what in, so phenomenology, right, is, is called kind of the, um, the, the bracketing or the suspension, right, that you suspend old habits of judgment and really connect with your actual experience a lot more deeply. So I think that's really what that is. And you can apply that to others, but you can also apply that to yourself. So how uh, about your own voice that may have been shut down in the past or something? And um, so then the other layers are, go, are going even deeper there. But it's essentially attending to not just kind of um, the voice that's already manifested and that's already uh, reconfirmed and reenacted uh, uh, through judgments and through the patterns of the past, but really leaning into emerging future possibilities that are not yet maybe visible to the eye, just as the quality of the soil is, is not often not really quite readily visible to the eye before you att attend to it kind of in a more uh, uh, refined way. So that's where uh, I think uh, you experiment around listening and, uh, you know, creating space often, I would say here in the U.S. So why is it? I had like a few weeks ago, I was approached by um, a group from, from Israel, right? And uh, they said, look, our country is being ripped apart. It's essentially the, the same process we discussed earlier, right? Kind of that a country that used to be one is you can, you can watch it happening is kind of pulled apart and it's losing its capacity to work as a whole. And just um, as we are, as we can witness here and in other places. And um, so she said, how can we, um, so, so can we team up 
and find like um, create a space of listening, maybe of listening across wall regions where we attend to places like uh, where we have extreme cases, right? And I think Israel is a right now, right, is an extreme case of of that. But of course, um, uh, the situation you described earlier, right, is is an e even more uh, extreme case of this. Um, Uh, forces that are, are pulling something that used to be a whole uh, into parts and allows maybe then also new um, new identities and, and a new whole to form and to, uh, to, uh, to, uh, to, uh, to take shape. So I wonder um, how um, these, um, what your thoughts are, how these spaces of listening and new types of conversation that not only reflect on the past, but that lean into emerging future possibilities in, in your part of Europe and your part of the world that allow that to happen. Is that already in the way? Are there activities? Are there, what's kind of the soil dimension of working on the future that um, is uh, hopefully going to take shape? I think that that uh, we w what is really important is how we link our ideas to our experience uh, and how we can look at our experience and see the roots of our, certain of our ideas and maybe in a way to relativize them so for example maybe Uh, a lot of this aggression in Russia with regard to Ukraine or with regard to the West or something are related to some processes that were happening in in the families in the in, with the domestic violence or something like that that's that's my hypothesis so people want to expand this violence to others because they they themselves suffered and continue to suffer from violence not only physical but mental violence etc and uh, i do think that if we can for example i being outside maybe i'm wrong and too naive but i understand why people in america i i i, I think i understand why people some people in america vote for trump or some people in, in Britain voted for Brexit, because this is deeply linked with the experience. Because it is, it is most probably for me, maybe I'm wrong, uh, it's linked with the fact that on a certain moment, their present and their future became worse than their past. And they, they, they went through a certain you know, golden age, and, and, and they have this feeling of, of losing something. And I don't know how I would behave in, in, in this way, because despite the war, despite all this fact, we still live in this condition in Ukraine that our future will be better than our past and our present. And in the, of course, it depends on, 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 on many, many things. So we can, we can really consider experience as, as, as also as the soil where you know we have roots and and all this and all this brings us back to these botanic metaphors which I, which i do think that uh we need to bring back to social sciences and to humanities which were really considered as something obsolete in the second half of the 20th century because the the biggest ideas of the second half of the 20th century was 
uh, those ideas of of constructivism, social constructivism, and understandably so, because the organicist ideas were so much linked to these neo-romanticism and even sometimes fascism, etc. But I, I do think that we 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 there is something in in, in there because. It's it's all about life. It's it's not our societies are also living organisms. They're they're not just you know constructors. They're not machines. You cannot easily deconstruct them or just disassemble them because there will be things that will continue uh, despite despite your will. And I think one of the things uh, about the future is also understanding that, however smart we might be in projecting or designing the future the, the future will not be future if it not if it does not surprise us if it does not create some absolutely unpredictable things and maybe we are entering an era of these unpredictable things covid was one of them well for some people predictable but not for the whole world the war the russian invasion was another for Ukrainians, it was predictable, but not for the whole world. Maybe there is something else ha- will happen in in the next year that will completely change uh, our our vision of the future. And um, in a way, I, I think this is also an illusion in which uh, people were living in the Western world. Maybe after the collapse of the Soviet Union, after the 1990s that the future will be continuation of the past that the future is only about technological progress technological development so and the future is only about new cars that we will make better cars that we will we will have better apartments that we will uh, have better trains and that's it no the future can be disruptive the future can be ugly the future can be unpleasant too uh it's and and we should also be prepared for this i think that's very true uh, i think that kind of view that we uh, reach the end of history so that that's now certainly history and um what um what comes with it i would say particularly you know as a, as a person who is par- partly in academic environments and partly in uh, uh, more uh, involved in societal change in a variety of sectors um what i'm noticing is that in in our academia and our intellectual life right there are three things that are overrated today uh, and the first one is knowledge the second one is uh, action, and the third one is uh, is, is uh, I would say um, being comfortable and knowledge, right? So is uh, what's the um, we basically overrate knowledge because um, in reality most situations we face right now, particularly in regard to the future, we don't know, right? So what's more important than knowledge is accessing our not knowing. That's what we need and the current situations to navigate our decision-making. We need to take action. We need to decide, even though we don't know how it's going to play out. So accessing our not knowing, and that's really what theory is talking about with all the sensing stuff, right? You need to sense, you need to access a deeper layer of your experience in order to navigate in situations where all the exterior navigation devices stop working. Then on the action part, I think, 
everyone, regardless where you go, right? Everyone talks about action and so on. The more people talk about action, sometimes often kind of the less happen. So what's wrong with that? And I would say what can be wrong with that is that uh, if you move into act, 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 um, you, you lack, you do more of the same. And that's the problem often today. The responses, how we respond to the unprecedented crisis situation uh, that we live in as a world, as a whole, is usually more of the same. That's exactly the problem. So how do you come up with new patterns? By not acting, by accessing your inner resources of stillness. And that's what I call presencing, right? The gateway to presencing is access, not only your not knowing, but also access your source of stillness, kind of where new knowing and new patterns can come to surface. So access your deeper levels of intuition, if you want. And um, so that's, I would say, that's um, the, the second reframing from, from action to non-action or kind of uh, as a gateway into acting in, in collective action in new ways. And the, the last one, I think, I don't know, that's probably not applicable where, where you are, but, you know, I think the, the context where I am, often people don't like to be not comfortable, Right. And, and uh, yet in any kind of deep learning environments, as long as you are inside your cozy, warm comfort zone, you are not really learning something new, something. So whenever you deal with behavioral change, with, with really deeper layers of learning, you need to go to the edge of your comfort zone and you need to access your, your own vulnerability. And that's really the gateway for something new. Now, that's probably not um, much applicable any longer in, in Ukraine, but certainly the context I'm working on, that's very applicable because people generally, particularly in, in higher ed, right, uh, but also in other contexts, people don't like to go to the edge or beyond the edge of your comfort zone. And yet, often, that's exactly the gateway for something new to emerge. Well, in Ukraine, most of the citizens were uh, thrown away from the comfort zone. And uh, actually, I hope that those who will survive, and unfortunately we need to stress it every day, we have these deaths of, of people whom we love, who are neighbors, our former students every day. So this is something that... Every war has a name and every war has names and, and, and stories. So, you know, this Nietzschean phrase, what doesn't kill us make us stronger, but the problem is that sometimes it kills us. But indeed, uh, indeed, uh, it's, it, it's, a, it's a very, very, I would say, um, existentially very strong uh, I, I don't want to, to use the word interesting, but uh, relevant, very strong. Yes. What will come, what will be out of a society of those people who survived physically and mentally when uh, they were all thrown away from their comfort zones? Because uh, 
you know, Ukrainians were always thrown away from their comfort zones during Stalinist era in the in the camps or as refugees, uh, etc. And it doesn't always help. If you are always out of your comfort zone, there is no place for creativity, right? But uh, all those IT specialists, violin players, designer, computer game designers who went to the front line and who will come back, they would probably create something incredible. That's that's really that's really possible, and therefore, I I, I do believe that what you say is is true. Look, Otto, we are talking about one hour, and it's very, very interesting and intriguing conversation. Uh, but I think we we need to wrap up, and I'm really happy to engage with you and to talk with you and and to have a genuine conversation. So maybe we'll continue one day. Otto Scharmer, thank you so much for this dialogue. Thank you so very much. And um, uh, from the bottom of my heart, I, I wish you um, um, strength and, present and presence. And I wish all of us that, um, uh, that in the events to come, we really make the right choices. It, um, it's uh, concerning me uh, a lot personally to see a lack of conversation in the country that I'm living in, which is the United States, about its own role in the current situation, right? That's like a taboo, right? Talking about taboos, I mean, that's my role to, to address them as an intellectual. But it's very hard here because no one wants to talk about it. And yet, if you look at the... Um, the uh, uh, the war uh, the, and also the the the, the history of um, uh, proxy wars um, in um, in the past, um, uh, including the recent past. If you look into Afghanistan, into Iraq, and um, all the other countries, um, and you look at how these countries ended. It breaks my heart to see um, uh, to see unfolding what's currently unfolding uh, in Ukraine. I think there is, um, uh, of course, um, that the primary actor, as we all know, is kind of Putin and the Russians. But there's also a part that we play. There was a peace agreement in March 2022 between the Russians and the Ukraine before the West intervened and said, no, we can't accept that. And that was recently shared by the prime minister of Israel, right? Who was negotiating that very deal. All these things you don't hear in Western media. And uh, it pains me a lot to see how, how much our conversation here in the West is in a bubble that is missing these critical elements of self-reflection that we need to cultivate in order to come up with the right arrangements that save life and kind of that protect the future the way we need. I would disagree with you here because uh, it's it's uh, absolutely unthinkable for Ukrainians in March 2022 to accept any peace with 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 the Russians because it was it would be actually an occupation what was happening there. And uh, 
hopefully Ukrainians did found, find the forces by their own weapons, by the way, the Western weapons didn't come yet to to get to to make victory over over Russia in the battle for Kiev in the battle of Sumy the battle of Chernihiv because I was there you know and I I I have seen with my own eyes what was what would be happening if if Russians succeeded there in March 2022 they would just may take a pause and they would use it to conquer the whole of Ukraine later but that's a different but, yeah Different conversation. That, that's a different, different conversation. conversation. And just for, for clarification, I didn't say what the agreement was, and that's kind of not what he shared, right? The, the prime minister of Israel. But what he did say is that there was an agreement um, and uh, that um, this was uh, vetoed by the West. And uh, what the nature of that agreement was, uh, he didn't share. And, 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 but there is no, because he was first person involved that he shared that in a podcast. And what I think, you know, there may be other views and so on. But what, I, what, what I'm missing in the West is even a conversation about that. And um, that's not preparing us well for the things that are ahead of us. That's my concern. And that's... Um, You know, uh, I didn't want to leave this conversation without that. I understand and appreciate that you are coming from a different place. But as a friend and as a supporter for everything you do, I also need to share my honest thinking. And that's just what I did. Thank you, Otto. Thank you so much. And I hope we will meet in person one day and to talk Same here. Uh, more. Okay, Thank wonderful. You. Thank you. Bye bye. This was a podcast Explain Ukraine and its series Thinking Dark Times. Explain Ukraine is a podcast by Ukraine World, a website in English about Ukraine. You can support our work at patreon.com slash ukraineworld. We provide exclusive content for our patrons. You can also support our volunteer trips to the frontline areas at paypal, ukraine.resisting.gmail.com. Stay with us and stand with Ukraine.